You're listening to the Film Marketing Academy podcast, the audio series dedicated to helping filmmakers create better film marketing campaigns faster. Join your host, Pascal Fintoni, for what promises to be an exciting and intriguing voyage of discovery filled with advice, stories, and film marketing ideas. Thank you for tuning in. And now, on with today's episode of the Film Marketing Academy podcast. Way back in 2008, Cloverfield was released, and it was a pretty big blockbuster film, found footage uh, blockbuster film, all about an alien invasion. And that's not the film we're going to be talking about in film marketing today. We are going to be talking about the sequel to Cloverfield. But actually, the sequel, which was called 10 Cloverfield Lane, was a sequel that nobody really ever heard was coming. And in some respects, nobody really expected it. And maybe that was part of the appeal. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that was a very daring thing to do. So to begin with, uh, you've got to applaud the creators for keeping it a secret for nearly two years because production started in 2014, was finished 2014. Then this movie, as we're going to hear in a moment, was released in March 2016. So what happened in 2015? Well, we know that the production company Bad Robot, with J.J. Abrams behind at the helm with his co-founder, maybe was a little busy with this thing called The Force Awakens. No, you're absolutely right, Pascal. You couldn't let 10 Cloverfield Lane get in the way of a good Star Wars movie, could you? No, absolutely. So, I mean... You, I've seen Cloverfield. I went to the cinema, but there was a big build-up, and I was so excited. And the movie surprised us greatly because the, the marketing campaign 2008 kept so much uh, as a secret. You know, you, even though you watched a trailer, even though you went online to glean more information, that the movie surprised greatly. And, and the same is true for this one. But did you remember seeing Ten Cloverfield at the movies, or did you wait for the DVD Blu-ray release? We waited for the Blu-ray release, and I'm not sure how I feel about this film, Pascal, because it it felt to me at the time as if I'd been conned a bit. (laughs) Uh, I I was just expecting a proper sequel, you know, with monsters, and and the original film was... was, um, you know, handheld footage type found film uh, and and really quite fast and exciting with lots of jump cutting. This film, it just felt to me as if they'd taken a different story about a creepy guy who kidnaps a girl and hides her in a um, nuclear fallout shelter um, and they've added this sort of Cloverfield bit on to capitalise on the original film, which is probably correct, actually. It's probably what they did. Uh, so I, I just felt a little bit short. I'm not saying it's not a good film. It's it's an incredibly good film. And, you know, it's tense. It's exciting. It's, it's creepy as well. And, you know, there's real jeopardy involved. But, you know, we're saying that it was a sequel that nobody was expecting. I just still wonder whether it's genuine, genuinely a real sequel or not. Well, indeed, the film director's producers, J.J. Brams, never confirmed nor denied that it was a sequel. 
keeping obviously the word of mouth marketing going is it or is it not and eventually during the interview i think you use the term well 10 cloverfield lane is like a blood relative to cloverfield so not the sequel but part of the same same universe and obviously setting up a a franchise i mean for me i went to the movies and and i was so taken by the experience of three people trapped in an underground bunker a John Goodman, who was truly frightening. I mean, the man, which uh, really, I, who I know mostly for comedy, was so sinister as the unhinged kind of uh, preppy, I think they, they called on their preppers. Mm. And obviously, you had the actress Mary Elizabeth uh, Winstead, who plays Michelle, who uh, gets a lot of his attention. And we have the third character, um, Emmett, who we learned through the story has helped him build build the the bunker, but had to fight his way inside the bunker. And, and the whole story is around John Goodman, plays Howard, saying, you can't go out because it's either a chemical attack on the Russians or something worth from outer space, and you can't go out. Is he telling the truth, or is he a complete psychopath who just wants company whilst he's chosen to lock himself into a bunker for no good reasons? Yeah, no, and, and from a psychological point of view, it's quite painful, isn't it, to, to actually see how it how it progresses and the, the sort of levels of tension rise. I mean, the standout moment for me was when... Um, Michelle effectively creates a chemical suit mm. and a gas mask. So you know she wants to escape. And there's a sequence where she effectively inadvertently sets fire to the bunker. And, and you know, you're underground, you're trapped underground, and the only way out is up through a, a, a air vent. And that sequence, as she's trying to get out, and you know that the, it's going to either burn the whole thing inside out or explode, that part from when she sets the fire inadvertently to getting out and being trying and, and John Goodman trying to stop her as well. It's so tense. You really are on the edge of your seat. For me, the, the one standout is the very first time John Goodman loses his temper. Mm. So they maybe they're eating at the table and mm. I think perhaps out of sheer boredom, uh, Michelle and Emmett, uh, they play full, a bit cheeky, maybe take the mick out of him a bit yeah. and they go too far and he loses yeah. it. Yeah. And my God, the performance, and also because John Goodman's such a tall, large guy, you know, his yeah. stature, he just towers those two and loses it. And I'm thinking, oh my God, and they're stuck with him in this bunker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I like John Goodman a lot. You know, he's, he's, he was in one of my favorite films of all time, which is called Sea of Love, and which yeah. was, a, was a cop drama. Uh, he, he's, you know, he can play comedy, he can play sinister. And um, I'm not sure what I thought about the ending again, Pascal, because obviously she, she does escape from the bunker, and the, probably the last five to ten minutes of the film, that's when it becomes genuine cloverfield because then we have aliens chasing her across the fields and we have spaceships um trying to lift her up and take the car up into the uh, into the spaceship so um, I, I, it still just felt to me as if it was a bit tagged on at the end yeah and, and i think it's because also we spend let's say an hour and 20 minutes inside the bunker 
and suddenly we're out. Mm. And and you've got, it's almost like this overwhelming sense of of space, information, and then the the, the alien. Um, I didn't mind it so much, and the, I think the reason why the ending worked okay, although I do agree with your point, is because at the very end, she's she's in the car, the radio is playing, and they talk about essentially most of the U.S. being invaded by the, those creatures, mm. and they're asking for help, and she chooses because I think she has some um, knowledge around medical background. She chooses to go to a city that needs her help, and mm. I feel it opens up to potentially potentially more, but. In terms of the um, the marketing, just to give us a quick link into that, remember we and I said and there was no forewarning. The movie was released in in, in March two thousand sixteen, but the marketing started in January two thousand sixteen. This is mm. a two month campaign, Roger, mm. and I can't wait to explore with you the elements to say how do you make a two month campaign, which is incredibly short. How do you make it work? Yeah, I mean, they they obviously had the usual um, standards. There was a quite effective poster, actually. I, I love the idea of how they created the great big L mm. of the word lane, almost implying down the down the poster that the fact that they were in this nuclear fallout bunker. I think that was very very clever. And and again, the trailers focused in on you know that what you've already said. Don't go out there. Something's coming. Uh, they were very effective, but. This particular campaign wasn't traditional at all. Beyond the poster, beyond the trailer, they did something totally different. And it was this vir viral campaign that uh, you, you mentioned too before. And of course, the original Cloverfield film had a, uh, an earlier sort of internet savvy um, campaign. But this one, they absolutely nailed it. Absolutely. And you know, the term viral marketing is used a lot in mm. the world of marketing. And often it's just this aspiration of creating content that others are going to share on. But actually in the case of uh, this film, and of course I suspect with a strong influence from J.J. Brahms, he brought in some element of gamification, which I think came, yeah. must come from his work on Lost, where there was a lot of things you could do beyond yes. watching the movie to go online and find information about the airline and find information about the different characters. And of course Cloverfield, so we begin with uh, a discovery by really big fans of the genre that you could order the same um, kind of fizzy drink as the characters you could, you could see on the trailer. So you've got some eagle-eyed fans who discover a real business where you can order the Swamp Pop Soda that was featured in the film. And three things happen depending on who you were. So if you were lucky enough to be some of the first few two orders, not only did you get the soda and you can show off online, but you also got some pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that the characters were playing in the movie. Yeah. Led into the, to the legend that maybe that's why they can't finish the puzzle. Others got a, the sign saying, terribly sorry due to unfortunate circumstances on the eastern seaboard, su mm -hmm. suggesting the monsters, we can't order, um, you can't, we can't deliver to you. And then others say, well, there's only one or two left, and the price is $4,813, which so happens to be the number that Howard, played by John Goodman, punches into the jukebox to play the song, I Think We're Alone Now. <laughs> yeah, and, and they also had this whole sort of, um, 
you, you had to go out and find more information, didn't didn't you? It's almost mm. like a it's like a treasure hunt. You, you're looking that's for right. discovering the letters. Now, the, the Howard that, that that's the uh, creepy character. He has a daughter called Megan, who we never actually meet in the in the in the show, and and the the implication is that he did something horrible to his daughter Megan. But you, you actually go out there and you can find letters that he had written to his daughter expecting her to come back and then details of the bunker he was building and you almost like you could get involved in his in this character's life um and i imagine that appealed to quite a lot of people who just love putting clues together and there's quite a lot of games you can get for iphones and 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 androids these days which are almost these these clue based games where you have to piece together like escape rooms on on phones i guess and that's like this isn't it you're just finding the information yeah to piece together the story before you've even seen the film I love the way you use the term treasure hunt because that's how it mm. feels. And I, I, I'm absolutely convinced that it means that like, like you and I, because J.J. Abrams is, is of our age group, he will have played RPGs. He will have played yeah. Dungeons and Dragons and more to come up with, because that's what you do. You know, you, you have um, players around the table and you dish out, you know, type messages and you dish out maps and so on. People went as far as going onto websites and using the mouse cursor, highlighting parts of the website to see whether there was a hidden hyperlink where if the website was in white, maybe the text was in white and you can uh, discover yeah. things like this. But um, the one that blew my mind in terms of just the, the prep, but also the discovery was a find that at the movies, depending which a um, chain you went to, they had five different trailers for the movie. Yeah, each with a final frame being different. So you literally had to go online and freeze frame to the last frame. The last frame would reveal a hand drawing, a kind of some old-fashioned hand drawings, but also some numbers and some clever so-and-so managed to pull the numbers together, being the coordinates to somewhere in the US where you could go and someone went. It's on YouTube. They went into the coordinates, they dug the ground, and they found a box left allegedly by the character Howard. Oh, that's just classic isn't it absolutely i mean the fact that they did that um and took the chance i mean that is quite a complicated um, load of information you've got to piece together to find those coordinates the fact that they expected somebody some incredible geek to do that it's the sort of thing you and i would have done isn't it uh to actually go and dig that box up i mean fabulous fabulous and why is it viral? Because then you end up with thousands upon thousands of people around the world and indeed, you know, also in Europe where the movie did very well, discussing and getting excited about those clues and people organize themselves in forums and they go on fandom, they go on Reddit, they go on Facebook, they go on Twitter and they talk about the marketing of the movie a lot more than they talk about the movie because the movie has the trailers you said and they did do enough in terms of advertising which was also a first 2006 and spent so much money online as opposed to on tv and billboards and so on but the one thing that has, has stayed from the 2008 campaign roger was of course the reference to the tag ruato company mm. now this is the infamous japanese deep sea drilling companies that we think may be responsible for the appearance of the monster in the very first one mm. and you could at the time they've the website's still live but there is a holding message you could at the time go on this official website and discover more clues about howard 
the fact that he's worked for the company, which maybe suggests he knew more than he let on in the movie. And within that, you could discover more about him and his daughter and the messages they left on each other, almost like hackers. You know, they were hidden away on websites and back to this treasure hunt. Uh, I think it's absolutely amazing. And the very final clue before the movie was released was interesting because uh, this was played almost real time, Roger, where because the movie had been released in March 2016, well, everything stops in March 2016, suggesting that for those who've seen the film, Howard obviously comes to you know a pretty painful end, and there's no more messages from him. But the last clue took you to a youth hostel in Chicago, where you could ring a number and hear more from Howard. Yeah, I mean, do you think? I mean, it's such an immersive campaign, but incredibly. Uh, detailed and obviously appealing to the geek uh, fraternity and I, I can't imagine your mainstream cinema goer you know a family cinema goer doing all of this so it was definitely aimed at you know people like us but do you think that because it was so immersive and because it sucked you so much into the Cloverfield universe, do you think there was a lot of people who were disappointed when, like myself, they just felt actually the Cloverfield bit was tagged onto the end of a just a film about a creepy guy in a nuclear bunker? Possibly. Um, I mean, to your point, they had to be careful not to alienate or simply, uh, as we discussed literally last week about yesterday, where people missed the campaign altogether, very short, two months. So they did go ahead with a more uh, pedestrian and straight off the mill trailer for TV and the Super Bowl ads. So literally, if you watch trailer number three, the third one, it gives everything away. I mean, literally, it suggests uh, you even get to hear the rumble, the monster, and the shadow yeah. uh, looming at the end. So I think for me, it's probably the um, less exciting trailer. I think that the first two that they created for the campaign were very good. But you're right. They probably realized, hang on a minute, you know, this is getting a bit too clever maybe or a bit too elitist. So let's do something which is more mainstream. And that's when the TV uh, and, and online adverts of a very, very kind of um, yeah common trailer where there's a proper beginning middle and end and you literally discover even through that trailer that Michelle escapes you don't know what happens to her but she escapes and, and is facing up to one of of the monsters so they probably had to do that very quickly at the end yeah absolutely and and you're absolutely right it you know when she makes the decision to drive towards Houston you almost think yep there could have been another film about Michelle after that and of course we haven't had it yet, and maybe we never will. So this this was an interesting one this week, Pascal, because I don't think we've really come across a campaign like this before, a real detailed, almost painstakingly detailed viral marketing campaign appealing to the geeks out there who really love piecing together these bits of information, but at the same time running a parallel campaign which is more mainstream posters, trailers, that sort of thing. So I think this is, whilst the film itself might not have lived up to the hype, I think the marketing campaign certainly did. 
And it's a great addition to film marketing because what you and I are trying to do, although we don't choose the movies for the campaign, which is movies because we like them or we think something to say, we do try and make sure that we extract elements of the campaign that can be a source of inspiration for all of you and listeners, and they can take that away into the world of business and entertainment, no matter your profession. And I am so pleased because this being number 48, I would say I would agree with you, this is the first proper viral campaign that we've discussed. Let's hope we're going to experience many more of these in the years to come. So Pascal, once again, fantastic to share some time with you here on the screen and here in the audio studio. Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, episode 48. Thank you everyone for watching the show. Thank you everyone who listened to the show. As always, let us know what you think about Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. Give us some feedback on the YouTube channel. Look up, look for us on Twitter. We're both there. And tell us which films you'd like us to talk about. Tell us which films you want us to talk about from the point of view that they're really good films, but also from the point of view of the marketing campaigns. Until the next episode, please, all of you, go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards, and he was Pascal Fintoni. Thank you for listening to the Film Marketing Academy podcast, the audio series dedicated to helping filmmakers create better film marketing campaigns faster. For more information about our film marketing consultancy and training services, go to filmmarketingacademy.com and book your free discovery video call. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe and follow your host on social media for more updates.